this morning as we look at our first call to growth, we look at the practice of evangelism, we look at a familiar story, the story of a wee little man, Zacchaeus. It's a great story. No doubt you know the song, I'll Spare You. But what's great about this simple little kid's story that we tell at Vacation Bible School is that I think for the big kids in the room that are left, there's an unmistakably clear point that I think sometimes gets lost. You know, we kind of lose the forest for the sycamore tree. Um, We hear this cute little story about a short man that wants to see Jesus. And we miss the fact that Jesus makes his point for coming crystal clear. As a matter of fact, if I can say this in Christian love, you have to be a little dense not to get it. Jesus speaks with clarity related to his mission and purpose. And perhaps no other story in the entire Gospel of Luke provides such a clear and exact snapshot is the story of Zacchaeus. Really, it's the story of Jesus. Zacchaeus just happens to be in the picture. And so I pray this morning as we talk about sharing the good news that God will challenge us with His Word in order that we might have a heart like His. Pray with me, please. God, thank you for the opportunity to worship together. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Uh, Thank you for the time that they've had to spend with friends and loved ones this week. Lord, as we have the opportunity to come and honor you as king, especially on this day, we pray that we will demonstrate your kingship seven days a week, not just one. Help us to use whatever abilities you have given us for your glory when it comes to the proclamation of your gospel. Help us to take, even if we think our gifts are meager, help us to have a heart that lays them at your feet and allows you to use them as you see fit. I pray that for myself as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now Luke's gospel is... um, A little different in its arrangement. It's a long book. If you're going to read through the entire Gospel of Luke, it's not one of the shorter books in the Bible. It's one of the longer books. But the way that Luke arranges his Gospel is of particular interest. Because about 40% of the way through, 40% of the way through, he makes this statement in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus has resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He has a particular road trip in mind. And this is not just a happy holiday journey for the Passover with Jesus and his merry band of disciples, but a journey to a particular city for a particular purpose. You see, we have the benefit of knowing what the destination is. It's Jerusalem. And we also know the purpose. He's headed to the city of David. And we know what will happen there is that he will be abused, he will be accused, and he will be killed 
as a criminal. And in spite of that, Jesus being God, knowing all things, in spite of what he knew would happen to him, Jesus was committed to this journey. He didn't try to extend his holiday vacation. He set his face. And he said, boys, we're going. Let's get on with it. And on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, we run into the story that occupies our attention this morning in Luke chapter 19. Ten short verses, verses 1 through 10. Jesus is on his way, committed to going to Jerusalem. And on his way, he goes through the city of Jericho. Now Jericho, we know from the Old Testament, that's where Joshua marched around, they blew the trumpets, the walls fell down. But Jericho had been rebuilt, and it was by all measures a large and important city with many residents. It was a very strategic stronghold. One Bible commentator noted that the city was filled with 10,000 priests. 10,000 priests. But they don't figure prominently in the story of Jericho that we're about to read. There is one person in particular held out for our special notice, and that is the man named Zacchaeus. Let's see what we find out about him in verses 1 through 4 of Luke chapter 19. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. If I can insert a little Scottish accent here. He was a wee man. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. We find out quite a bit about Zacchaeus. We don't know a lot, but there are some blanks that we can fill in in our biography of this man. He is introduced to us very quickly. Jesus is going through Jericho, and hey, there's a guy named Zacchaeus, and he is described singularly. There is a word used for Zacchaeus that is nowhere else used in the Scriptures. He is called a chief tax collector. Now, we hear about tax collectors in the Bible. This is the only occurrence in all of Scripture of a chief tax collector. Now, what that means is that Zacchaeus is an esteemed and important man. People don't necessarily like him, but being a chief tax collector means that he is a regional manager of the Roman tax office. This is not a local mom-and-pop shop. He is a government employee. And by this time in biblical history, there are probably only four regional tax offices in what is now known as the Holy Lands. Jericho as a city was located on a major east-west trade route from an international highway called the King's Highway that connected several different countries. And from the King's Highway, the interstate exit that you would take to Jerusalem, there was Jericho. So from an east-west and from a north-south perspective, Jericho was a very important city as a trade route. 
And Zacchaeus is likely one of four in the entire country. That's a pretty important fellow. Now, we don't know, we, we don't only know that he was a chief tax collector. The Bible, in a very great economy of words, also says he was rich. And this is where the shoe kind of falls for Zacchaeus, because tax collectors were despised. Yes, he may have been important, and he may have been esteemed and given accolades because of his government position, but morally and socially, people avoided him like the plague, because of how he got his riches. Not only was he considered a turncoat, since he collected money for the Romans, the occupying force, but he made his money by overcharging in taxes and keeping the excess. Now, what do we know about Zacchaeus? He's not a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. So if he's going to make his money, he's going to make it on top of the tax collectors making theirs. So the tax collectors would charge you more, and then Zacchaeus would charge more from the tax collectors who are collecting. He's double-dipping. And so he was rich, and he had made it off the backs and the labor of his countrymen, who he didn't care about because he was working for a foreign occupying power. Now, it's a good thing that Zacchaeus was rich because given what we know already, that he was a chief tax collector and he was rich, he probably needed a bodyguard when he went out in public. This was not a guy that you invited over for dinner. There's something else that's interesting about Zacchaeus that I don't think we always catch. Yes, we know his occupation. Yes, we know his socioeconomic status. But he's not just described as rich and a chief tax collector. Have you ever thought about the fact that Zacchaeus was intensely drawn to Jesus? It's our first point. Non-religious people are often attracted to Jesus. Non-religious people are often attracted to Jesus. Now, there is no information that we have here in this passage about any particular PR on Jesus' part. Everything we know is that he's passing through. Kind of an incidental story. But Jesus' arrival in Jericho causes quite a stir. Think triumphal entry, just kind of on a smaller scale. Evidently, from what we can gather, people were lining the, the, the main street of Jericho, and little Zacchaeus can't see because everybody's taller than he is. I mean, think about it. If it, There are all kinds of people who pass through Rock Hill every day. You don't have a problem seeing whoever you want to see. If you happen to know their route, you can go camp out here on Dave Lyle and I-77 and wave as they drive by. This is not that. This is an event. This is a thing. And Zacchaeus, it's important enough when he hears this to stop whatever he's doing, to take an extended lunch break, to call in sick to work, to do whatever it is that he's doing, to stop because he's curious enough and he really wants to see him. That's not the picture I think we get from our culture when we talk about non-religious people. We don't even know how to talk about non-religious people. You know, if you call them non-Christians, that's not politically correct, you know. 
uh, non-believers? Well, they, of course they believe something. What do you call them? In, in, I think in our day and age, times are, times are different. 1950s, you could give a Bible quiz at the mall and people would pass it. Nowadays, you can give a Bible quiz in church and people think Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Some of you get that later. <laughs> times are different. And, and it is indeed true. The Bible says that for those who want to live for Christ, we can expect opposition. And I think some of us read that, that we're to experience persecution and opposition. And, and that is the only color glasses that we wear. And so we walk through life thinking the world is going to hell in a handbasket. You know what? It is. The Bible says that. That apart from Christ, everybody's going to hell. So yes, granted, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Do you know what? That's not the only shade that we need to wear on our glasses. Statistical research shows that 85% of people who do not go to church, don't go to church, would go if they were personally invited. That surprise you? Because we, we tend to think non-religious people, they don't want anything to do with church. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. That's not true. You see, they're attracted to Jesus. It's us that sometimes is the problem. They love Jesus. Jesus is awesome. He heals people. He does good. He hangs out with the rough crowd. It's the church that people have problems with. And so there are certainly people out there who are opposed to the church and everything that it stands for. But friends, those people are the exception to the rule. Is Jesus not eminently beautiful? Is he not glorious? Is he not gracious and merciful? You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate these things. This is important for us to realize that indeed non-religious people can be attracted to Jesus. Because if they can be attracted to Jesus, where are they going to hear about him from? Think about this for a second. Non-Christians in Rock Hill, if they hear something about Jesus over the Christmas season, where are they going to get reliable information about who he is? From the culture? No. Just go to the supermarket, go to Walmart, and read Time Magazine. Jesus, virgin, virgin born or conspiracy theory. Jesus, we've, we've found his, we found his grave. We found his bones. No, they're not going to get good information from the culture. The nightly news? You can walk into some Christian bookstores and not get good information about Jesus from some of the junk that they sell. Where are they going to find the kind of answer that they need to hear? And I ask this question, if 85% of non-church attenders will come to church if personally invited, what are you doing to make it easier for non-religious people to hear good things about Jesus and not lies? If the truth is that people are waiting to hear, why are we waiting to tell? Why are we waiting to share? And just to be immensely practical, who have you invited to church recently? Now, I don't mean to say that the church is the only place that they're going to hear about Jesus. You know where else they can hear about Jesus besides coming to, to church on Sunday? Guess where? It's radical. 
It's not a centralized place. It's dispersed on every corner of the globe. Individual Christians. Now the problem is, what percent of Christians actually share their faith? I I could be really mean, but it would not serve a good purpose. If we asked how many people have shared the gospel, shared the content of the gospel to a point where someone could say, yes, I want to savingly put my faith in Christ. How many have done that more than five times? How many hands would we have in our sanctuary? I I hope I'd be surprised. But according to national average, about 3% of Christians have intentionally shared the gospel with anyone over the course of the year. I'm saying, if you're one of those 3%, yeah, bring them to church, but share with them before they get here. Take advantage, take initiative, do it. But if you're timid or you don't feel like you're you're prepared to do that, you know what you can do? You don't have to know um, some fancy program for presenting the gospel to invite someone to church. Invite them. The statistics say that 85% of people would come if they're personally invited. And that doesn't just mean that, hey, you stand up in the lunchroom and say, hey, y'all come to church with me on Sunday. That's not quite personal. That's an invitation, but it's a blanket. Saddle up next to someone. Say, you know what? I love my church. I enjoy it. I've got sweet relationships there. Uh, I hear good things about God's Word. I get reliable information. It's a great place, and I'd love for you to be my guest this Sunday. Back to our text. Let me, let me ask the question. Why, why does Zac- Zacchaeus have such an intense interest in Jesus? <clears throat> Again, there's no billboards. There's no road signs. Jesus, coming, December 29th. Zacchaeus doesn't know. He hears about it, and he drops whatever he's doing. What familiarity did he have? What kind of prior knowledge did he have that made his interest burn like a fire inside of him? I think there's really only two two options. Some of this is conjecture, but it's scriptural conjecture. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, if you flip back just a couple pages, it says that Jesus commissioned his disciples, there were 70 followers, and he commissioned them two by two to go to every city that he was about to come to. So it is possible that maybe two of Jesus' disciples were assigned to go to Jericho knowing that Jesus was going to go through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And they did some advanced prep work. They kind of tilled the ground and kicked the rocks out of the way so that when Jesus came, there there was advanced warning and preparation for Jesus to come. I think that's a possibility. Now, we don't have a list of all of the cities that, that the disciples went to. But knowing that Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go out, perhaps Zacchaeus first heard the name of Jesus when his disciples came through. That's a possibility. But there's another possibility that I think strikes a little closer to home. I'm going to ask you to flip back to Luke chapter 5. And this is intriguing to me. I I can't give you a thus saith the Lord on this, but this is just... Incredible to think about. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. The Word of God says this, After that, Jesus went out, and he noticed a 
tax collector named Levi, Matthew, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And then listen to this. And Levi gave a gigantic party for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi, Matthew, gets saved. And he knows how much his life is changing, and he knows that his sphere of influence needs to change too. So what's he do? He, he, he pulls out all the stops. He throws a great big party, and he invites everyone that he knows, which happen to be tax collectors. Now, in all likelihood, based upon where uh, Matthew was stationed and where Zacchaeus was stationed, they most likely worked in two different regions. But let's have a little sanctified imagination here. Could, could it be that Zacchaeus heard about the shakeup in the northern region? Knew about what happened to Matthew? Could it be that he was on a business trip up in the region of Galilee when all of this was happening? And that perhaps Zacchaeus was a fly on the wall at the party that Matthew threw? I don't know. But something had to happen to to create this intense draw on the part of Zacchaeus. And it's kind of cool to think about the possibilities. The point is this. Zac was interested and it was beyond reading a headline in the morning news. And this brings us to our our second point. Our testimony, the way we handle ourselves, will either increase or decrease people's interest in Jesus. Our testimony will either increase or decrease people's interest in Jesus. And it's a sad truth. We have to recognize this, that Christians themselves are sometimes the greatest obstacle to the gospel message. When I have the chance to talk to people who are maybe perhaps a bit militant, you know what their chief objection is? All the hypocrites in the church. I'm kind of glad to concede that one. Because I go, I'm exhibit A. I believe better than I live. If I lived consistently what I believed, my life would look a little bit different. I try, but I mess up. I believe better than I live. And the, the, the point, I think, for this is that we must be mindful that we aren't only to set an example for the little eyes that are watching us. We're not just supposed to be a good example as parents. We are to be a good example for all kinds of eyes that are watching us. Are you aware of how many people know your claim to be a Christian? They know that you're here at church on a Sunday? We need to be mindful of the seeking eyes of our co-neighbors and our neighbors and co-workers. I knew... Uh, I knew um, I knew one person, and I'll keep this safely anonymous, who really loved her church. You really just couldn't tell by the way she talked. She was the armchair quarterback par excellence. If it was the choir special, man, those altos, they completely blew it. 
If it was, you know, something in the children's ministry, well, they didn't wear the right clothes, you know. Or they, they keep track of, you know, the, as if this is like a fantasy football score. They keep account of everyone's attire on a Sunday morning. You don't get extra credit for what you wear on Sunday. And everything that came out of her mouth was criticism. And I just sit there and went, anyone that was in this woman's circle who didn't go to church would never come to the church that I serve because of her. Now, hear me clearly. I am not saying that the church is above criticism. Because you know what? What did we just say? We're all a bunch of hypocrites. We don't live as well as we intend. But you know what? There's a way that we can talk about that stuff in-house and deal with it. We've got to be mindful that people are watching us. And if they hear that kind of negativity and that kind of criticism, then you have just preempted a gospel conversation from ever happening. Because why would they want your bitterness when life is kind of okay for them? And so we've got to be mindful that the way we live out the gospel, people are watching and are very aware of what we say and what we do. There are some people that are so critical of the church they would make Siskel and Ebert blush with their criticism. Are people aware of your love and commitment to your faith family? And we all know what happens in the story here. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he is, happens to be, um, perhaps the nice way to say it, vertically challenged. He's short and he can't see. You know, he's kind of looking between people's legs trying to see what's going on there, you know, standing on his tippy toes, and he decides to go climb a tree. He wants a better vantage point. And the thing that's interesting is once he does that, he gets a lot more than he bargained for. What did he want? He wanted a glance at Jesus. And instead, he got a guest for the evening. A little bit more than what he bargained for. And I I think this is beautiful. Despite Zach's initiative to climb that tree, to get a peek, who's the one that takes the initiative in this story? Look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today I must stay at your house. Isn't it true that if Jesus never took the initiative, none of us would be here today? You know what the Bible's testimony is? That there is not one righteous, no, not one, who truly seeks after God. And when we see someone who is seeking after God, what do we know? God is at work. Calling his people to himself And he gets here, and Zacchaeus thinks he's safely anonymous, the wee man in the sycamore tree. And Jesus gets there and goes, what's up, Zach? How you doing? Got some grub at your place? Let's go eat. Wow. Beautiful to see. And here's what's really, I think, extraordinary. Point number three. When Jesus meets a seeking sinner, when Jesus meets a seeking sinner, great things happen. You can knock on a door to share the gospel seven nights out of seven nights. And you can have a door shut in your face. You can have gospel conversations. But then there's that one where it's like lightning strikes because God's there. 
He's everywhere. But you meet the person who very tangibly, God has gone before and softened their heart and they are responsive. And it's incredible. And that's why it's so important for us to move people from a state of simple seeking, like Zacchaeus was, to a personal encounter. Look at verses uh, 6 and then verses 8 through 9. So Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house. And he hurried. And he came down and received him gladly. Verse 8. We don't know what kind of time has elapsed, but it says Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give him back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. When Jesus calls, Zach responds. And he doesn't simply respond to a lodging request. He responds to something much more personal and much more deep. And we don't know when the events of verse 8 happen. Does it happen on the way to Zacchaeus' house from the tree? Does it happen the next morning as Jesus is going on his way? We don't know. We don't know when and we don't know why. Did he hear the flack that Jesus took from staying with him? You know, you know whatever he did. Why is he staying with the tax collector in the center? Did Zacchaeus hear that and go, man, I'm a bad guy. Jesus is a good guy. And Jesus is being called a bad guy because he's spending time with me. I, I don't know. Did Jesus preach to him while he stayed? We have no record of it. I can't imagine that he didn't say something. But it's not recorded in Scripture. Zacchaeus was rich. Did spending time with someone who had no place to lay his head bring conviction upon him? And he just said, look at everything that I have and everything that Jesus doesn't have, and yet he is supremely joyful and things are good for him. And I have everything and I'm miserable. We don't really know. All we know is that from this personal encounter with Christ, Zacchaeus is now aware of his sin And he has a sincere desire to right the wrongs he has committed. It's a beautiful picture of the great things that happen when Jesus meets a seeking sinner. How does he demonstrate his repentance? How does he demonstrate his repentance? At the very point where his sin had most manifested itself, he was rich. He cheated people. And he demonstrated his repentance by pointing out the root of sin in his life and just said, I'm going to give it back. At the point where he had been most greedy, he has now become most generous. And in the Gospel of Luke, it is certainly true that how one uses possessions and money is one of the chief most indicators of spiritual health. Zacchaeus, in demonstrating his repentance, went well beyond what was required by the law. The law required 20% restitution. What did Zacchaeus say? He said, if I have defrauded anyone, and the if is not conditional, he's saying, I have, I will give back not two times as much, 20%. I will give back four times as much. Jesus' statement in verse 9, that today salvation has come because he too is the son of Abraham, Jesus is, is not indicating that Zacchaeus was saved because he did a good deed. Rather, he's, de- he's saying that Zacchaeus' good deed demonstrates a change of heart in Zacchaeus' life. He wasn't saved because he did a good thing. He, did a, he, he was saved and then he did a good thing because he was a changed 
person. You see, for Zacchaeus, the time with Jesus wasn't just a, hey, thanks, bro, cool hanging out. It was a complete rearrangement of his life. And Zacchaeus knew enough to know where he was and where he needed to be to say, Lord, thank you. Here is my plan. Jesus didn't say, all right, Zacchaeus, if you want to really prove that you're sincere, I want you to give half of your possessions away. I want you to give 40% of your salary away. Zacchaeus came up with that on his own. Because Jesus did not require this. Yes, there was a change of heart that was required. But for Zacchaeus, this change of heart was demonstrated by his attitude and action to show what a truly repentant heart looks like. And friends, if your repentance didn't cost you a thing, I'd invite you to consider whether you have ever truly repented in your life. Zacchaeus knew that the cost of following Christ was costly. And this all sounds good, but we have to see one last thing that is important, and it's this. If Jesus is clearly committed to his purpose, can we be any less? Luke 19.10 is perhaps the most important verse in all of Luke's gospel. Jesus gives a purpose statement. And remember, he is on his way to Jerusalem and to the cross. And he says this, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Clearly, explicitly committed to seeking and saving. We need to understand something here that is important. Is that if Jesus is committed to his agenda, people will be committed to theirs too. Look at verse 7. When they, meaning the crowd, saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. When we talk about Jesus' mission, it rates ire from many different sides, even within the church. What are we doing focusing all our time and effort on lost people? We've got a room full of people here we need to take care of. Have you heard that? I've heard that. Every church I have attended or served, I've heard that. And if we're going to take Jesus' statement that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, friends, if we are here to worship, we are by definition not lost. Jesus' call for us to grow is a call for us to be committed to His purpose in the exact same way. You see, earlier in Luke 5, when we talked about Levi's party, it was the scribes and Pharisees who complained about who Jesus spent time with. But by the time we get to Luke 19, verse 7, when they all saw it, you see, the negative people who didn't like what Jesus was up to, they have a pervasive influence. And now, it's not just the scribes and the Pharisees who are complaining about Jesus. It's Everybody. Jesus isn't playing by our rules. Jesus isn't making our agenda chief most in his concern. 
He's spending time with these people, not with these people. And they spread their disease. And they're completely blind to Jesus' mission. Because what does Jesus do in this story? He takes a wee man. And he was bigger than this, but you get my point. He took a wee man and he called him out of a tree because he knew that he himself would go up a tree to die for his sins and to die for the sins of any who would believe in their heart and confess with their mouth, for the sins of all who would believe. There are many, many, many applications for a passage like this. There are many. I will only give you two. And I will trust the Holy Spirit to uh, give you a sanctified common sense to think about how you need to apply this best to your life. But I would say, I would say, I would draw us back to Luke 19.10 and Jesus' primary mission. Jesus' primary mission for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those that are lost. It's a, there's a twofold infinitive. English teachers, you can back me up here. Jesus came to seek and he came to save. Now, what, what church member would not rejoice to see the to save part happening here when we have our invitation? That'd be a great thing. Do you know what's got to happen for the to save part to happen? To seek. I think we get so impressed with our buildings and our campus and our programs and our small groups and our this or that that we just assume if we build it, they will come. And we pray for God to save people. We don't do much to seek them. Well, if they don't want to come on our rules, on our terms, well, to the bad place with them. But if they'll come and they'll dress like us and they'll do the things that we want them to do, we'll work with them. And so my first plea and application is to commit to being a seeker. Commit to being a seeker. The church must lead the way, like Jesus, in seeking the lost. Because it is so easy for us to get totally isolated from lost people. You know, we don't even do online dating sites with non-believers. Go to a Christian dating site. Why? Because if a non-Christian reads your profile, you're somehow degraded? We don't even want to play softball with lost people. And you know what? I would rather play in a city league because I'm disappointed when I see Christians live like the, wor- live like the world. Church league softball is worse than city league. At least with city league, I know what I'm getting. Church league, it's a roll of the dice. You hear worse language in church league softball, but we so isolate ourselves that if the world's going to do this, we're going to do our own thing. We create church recreational leagues for our kids. Because heaven forbid that our kids ever meet a non-Christian kid. Listen, I know there is a desire for us to be holy and to not endorse what the world is about because we can't do that. But if our holiness so isolates us that we have no opportunity to be a seeker, then our holiness becomes sin. Wouldn't it be better for a bunch of moms and dads to say, you know what? We're going to take over the Rock Hill Recreational League. And Chris Hefner and I are going to coach a soccer team next year. And you know what? There's going to be non-Christian kids on there, but we're going to love them. And we're going to seek them. And we're going to seek their parents. We don't need to pull our kids out and put them in a Christian league. 
where everybody wins <laughs> and nobody keeps score. The kids keep score. The point is this. We need to pursue holiness, but we cannot pursue holiness at the point where we're not pursuing people because that's what Jesus calls us to. So if you're going to be a seeker, invite someone to church and then invite them next week and see where the conversations go. How can you be a seeker? I'll give you an easy thing. Would you pray? Now, listen, this is messing with some of y'all. Would you pray this week that over 2014, someone will sit in your seat at worship and you'll be nice about it? (laughs) Would you be willing to give up your assigned sanctuary seat to seek and save the lost? I don't have a seat. I stand for most of the service, so it's easy for me to say. But would you pray that you have to move somewhere? That's a seeking heart. And lastly, will you commit to being a saver? Will you commit to being a saver? Now, you don't save them. The question is this. Do you know the gospel well enough to share it with someone efficiently? Same tool, different personality. You're going to share the gospel differently than me, and that's a good thing. And you're going to share the gospel differently than this person, and that person's going to share the gospel differently than that person. And you know what? As long as it's the gospel, it's okay. But do you know the gospel well enough to share it effectively? Friends, if I can say this as lovingly as possible, Our churches have grown up in a culture that has been friendly to Christianity. That culture is not alive anymore. So the things that we do that we enjoy that are not focused on Jesus' mission, we have to hold those a little more open-handedly. We have to let them go. Because you know what? We can do tons of stuff as a church that we really enjoy. And we can keep all the saved, non-lost people happy and not do one thing to be committed to his mission. Now I say that not even realizing the full implication of what all that means. I think I understand some of it. But what are we doing as a church? What are you doing as an individual believer to be a seeker and a saver? And on one hand, I don't care what you've done. I just care what you're going to do. Because you know what? Next Sunday when we meet, it's a new year. And we get a chance to chart a course of faithfulness that we choose. I pray that you will choose wisely. God, as we enter into our time of response, God, break our hearts. Help us to understand people's plights and our responsibility. In our weakness, make us strong In our inability, make us bold. Because we believe, as your word says, that you came to seek and to save. Help us to be committed to that same purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.